Welcome to Vita Readings. This is Danielle. And this is Max. I forget what I say next. Uh, Give us a quick summation of what this show is about. This is a podcast in which I give my husband a quick poetry lesson as we discuss our lives while our children are sleeping. And for about one hour a week, I can pretend that my wife and I are 40 pounds lighter, two children earlier, and living a decadent (laughs) and fun life. Just lying around, talking about literature. (laughs) And anything else without somebody screaming our names, actually our titles. Yeah. Da and Mama. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'd like to think that we have like a cornucopia of various foods around us right now that we're not sitting in a dank basement. Sweating. I'm not sitting here in my (laughs) boxer shorts. Right. Yeah. And I'm still in my workout clothes. I stink a little from my run earlier. Yeah, we will have to edit all this out as to not destroy the illusion that our listeners have about how <laughs> glamorous this life and, is. And beautiful we are. This is the life the humanities get you. <laughs> well, in thinking about uh, tonight's podcast, mm-hmm. um, so there is a poem that runs through my mind almost daily in mm-hmm. taking care of two young children. I think of the final lines of this poem almost every day. <laughs> you've you've said I, it, the actually um, you said it to me once a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and the last line has stuck with me into where I thought that that was the name of the poem. Oh, I, I, I know where you're going. I know what poem you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those Winter Sundays it, by Robert Hayden. I, I wasn't aware of the title, or I had forgotten the title. Right, um, but I, you know, I this is one that uh, it comes to my mind you know, when I'm taking care of our children. But it's also a a poem that I think is wonderful. I teach it to my students, and it's a perennial favorite of my students, despite Mm. the fact that, you know, its last publication date was in in Robert Hayden's collected, uh, the collected poems of Robert Hayden published in 1966. And you would think now, you know, over a half century later, um, that perhaps it might be too distant for contemporary students to really get into. But Mm -hmm. But uh, they're always drawn to it, and I'm not. I'm not surprised at all. I mean, partly it's it's Hayden's vivid descriptions mm-hmm. of things, his really straightforward declarations, which nevertheless describe you know a really complex constellation of emotions. But I think also it's because my undergraduate students are away from home for the first time, many of them, and oh. m- many of them are beginning to realize how much their parents did for them. To have some empathy for mm-hmm. their parents. Yeah. You know, familiarity breeds contempt, and they yes. are their parents are becoming sort of unfamiliar to them, mm. um, and therefore um, it gives them space to contemplate the vast uh, amount of small and great sacrifices you, they've made. I believe you're being very generous. I think what's happened is these kids are now doing their own laundry, <laughs> cooking their own meals, which is basically just making top ramen in a cup. Right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I'd like, to, I, I love your version of the world better because um, hopefully our children will be that aware. They'll, they'll get away from us for one month and suddenly. Well, I mean, I think it depends on the student, right? But for the mar- most part, though, I mean, so all of my students are actually kind of going through the same thing. And I've been teaching undergraduates for 16 years now. Mm-hmm. So um, they are still going through the same thing. <laughs> Every year they go through the same thing, um, which is to suddenly feel that they 
not not necessarily that they don't have a home, but their ideologies of home no longer fit who they are. Hmm. They want to become an adult in the world, and they're sort of practicing at doing that while in college. And, um, you know, I, I mean, this this poem is really about the the regret of a speaker looking back at their childhood with new understanding of their father's sacrifices and how they showed his love. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, some people with a more, I think, taciturn parents um, and students who are going through all kinds of emotional and psychological transitions in their life just to, you know, go from a child or adolescent in a household to an adult on their own. Um, they suddenly understand um, all of the small things that you have to do every day mm-hmm. as an adult. Yeah. Of course, they would understand that far more if they also had children, which I wouldn't recommend necessarily doing that while going no. through your undergraduate. Right, right. And not just to get empathy. <laughs> well, no, of course not. I mean, people people do it all the time. Those people are astounding. Um, but um, but yeah, it's, it's certainly easier to... Uh, engage in an undergraduate program without a child. But so, I, I mean, I, I would like to maybe just start by reading the poem out um, a little earlier and then move to conversation. Should okay. Um, I, 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 quick question. Um, okay. The, the author, um, Hayden. Yes. And we have a man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Finally, a man. Uh, <laughs> Finally, the male voice. <laughs> Eschewed for de- for millennia, <laughs> and finally the man voice can be heard. Um, no, my uh, my question is, uh, you okay? You said this was collected. Would you say sixty three, sixty six, sixty six? In is his this, collected, is this gentleman himself? He's not a baby boomer then. If his collected works, no, right? I mean he was writing, you know, in the nineteen thirties and and on. So he's okay. He, yeah, he's passed at this point. Okay, so he he died in nineteen eighty, I believe. Hmm. Well, he was actually Wait. he grew up in Detroit. Um, you know, uh, with large populations of African American. Okay, I was going to ask. Yeah, no, he's African American. Oh, okay, yeah. well then, well then, we're still not listening to the white male voice. Okay, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm now crestfallen. <laughs> no. Oh, <laughs> uh, we'll get to some white dudes someday, later on. Someday, someday, the oh, white man voice up. will have okay, <laughs> have its voice. Um, because I would like to remind me to come back because I'd like to talk about uh, the concept of of childhoods. Mm. is new i just the baby boomers so what three generations now are really the only people in the united states that have had what we would think of as the icon uh, the, the iconic childhood where there's a protected era of inner innocence that, and, play. And, and play you're not you're not out working <laughs> yeah getting yeah. your limbs ripped off in a gin mill right. or whatever Cotton mill, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I was like a gin mill. <laughs> they had a lot of children working in gin mills. I'll, I'll tell you about my childhood some other time. <laughs> I know all about your childhood. I can surprise you still sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. With horror. Um, okay, so okay, we'll talk about children childhood because there's the particular line I'm looking. Okay, you know what? Let's let's um let's have you work your magic. Okay. Well, while I'm reading. Listen to the author's use of heat and cold to describe both the economic situation of the family as well as the emotional environment Mm. of the household. Okay. (laughs) 
Those Winter Sundays by Robert Hayden Sundays, too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold. Then, with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather made banked fires blaze, no one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house, speaking indifferently to him who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know, what did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? So this poem starts with what I feel like is a kind of small observation. Sorry, I'm still weeping for myself as a father. I'm having empathy <laughs> for myself and, and projecting that maybe someday my children would write such a poem for you or think such a poem or think or, such a or, poem or, or, right. or just go. Yeah. Or, or do the slow clap, <laughs> <laughs> the slow clap that builds to a crescendo. Oh, wow, dad. <laughs> Well, yeah, and then, and then and then slowly Miles joins in, yeah. and, and the two of them. And stand then I appear up. out of nowhere, and I start fervently clapping as well for you, perhaps. Okay, and yeah. then I will I will descend from the parted skies. Right. And okay, I'm sorry. And we'll weep with with joy for your contributions to our lives <laughs> and my ascendancy, apparently, to an afterlife I do not believe in. <laughs> well, it's you know, um, I mean, it's it's a it's a poem that people like to suggest that people give fathers on Father Day, mm -hmm. Father's Day, rather. So, I mean, I feel like the poem starts with what is a small observation. Sundays, too, too. my father got up early. It's quiet, but direct, mm -hmm. and it really captures this voice, and it begins in what seems like a clarifying moment in the middle of a long contemplation, right? Sundays, too. too. yeah. My father got up early. To say Sundays too suggests that the speaker recognizes that the father did this every day of the week, every single morning of his life, even on Sunday, the day of rest. Mm -hmm. Right. So the speaker begins the stanza telling us that his father never rested. And then it ends with a quick and powerful observation. No one ever thanked him. Uh, yeah. Right. <clears throat> like that's a very direct one, especially considering the length of the sentence before which spans several lines oh you're right okay mm -hmm. so no one ever thanked him is a short um sort of punchy sentence right after a long description right and he also has and, the empathy that he knows that his father's hands ached right yeah in between these moments is the vivid description of the father rising alone in the blue black cold with his cracked hands to make the banked fires blaze right and of course the sonic texture of these lines is just wonderful. Mm -hmm. Predominantly, you can hear the repetition of B and K sounds, um, as well as W sounds a little bit uh, through his use of, of consonants and alliteration. Um, but the two most predominantly repeated sounds in this poem are B and K, the B and the K, mm -hmm. um, or the hard C sounds, with W sounds and S sounds being secondary 
sort of in, in the sound. The hard B and K sounds are mostly at the start, and the softer W and S sounds huh. start showing up more toward the end of the poem. So the sounds of the poem itself... Soften. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they transform from hard to soft as we listen to it. Wow. I, 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 that is something that I would... So the sonic texture of the, of the poem evolves with the speaker's emotional and tonal transition. Mm. Right. Um, and he begins with beautifully arranged, those straightforward words. You know, you might have noticed that there are no words in the first stanza longer than two syllables. Most of the words are monosyllabic. Mm-hmm. It gives us it gives us a sense of simplicity and straightforwardness in the speaker's voice, um, and this creates the illusion of simplicity. Um, because Hayden was a highly educated and accomplished writer, right? Um, he could have used the most complex word in the English language to describe the scene, mm-hmm. but he doesn't. Instead, he gives us words that we might describe as simple, focusing any ornament on the language on, on sensory details. So that we as readers are able to visualize the scene described. The very scene... much the language of a, <clears throat> uh, very much the language of a laborer's son. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, and, and and when we're inside of that memory, right? He places us inside the memory with that description. Mm-hmm. So when we're inside the memory, we are sort of inside of the mind of the child, which is now inside the mind of the of the of the grown man, mm-hmm. right? Um, this kind of, um, well, sonic texture, but as well as his his beautiful arrangement of images and the succession of images that we get um, really creates a kind of visual experience for the reader so that we get to see through the sun's eyes what he was seeing, right? Which makes me think that the sun must have been lying there in bed slightly awake mm-hmm. right <clears throat> watching the father do this and not helping and not thinking or him. listening to him or listening because to him he's right? talking about the uh, hold on um i heard i could hear the cold splintering and breaking mm-hmm. so that's the the cold that's manifest physically in the room or physically in the house right and as the fire's crackling it's I'm reading it that yeah. that's, it's that it's not just a a log splintering and cracking, but that's the cold going as well. Right. I could see he's like, yeah. I do not want to get out of bed yet. Yeah. I do not want to deal with my dad, who's probably still angry. Right. Because we talk about that. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh no no you you go ahead. I mean you're exactly right. Right. I, I wake and hear the cold splintering breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, this is part of the moment. I think I just gives this poem so much depth because it's not a simple recollection of a man who was just always kind of the golden years of, of my childhood and my father. No, no, this is, this was, this is to say we had a difficult relationship. Yes. Right. We were angry at each other and not just, we were angry at each other, but the chronic angers of that house that everybody was a little on edge. Mm-hmm. And you might you might take this, you know, in recollection in, in, in hindsight, you might take it to mean 
you know, maybe the father was in a bad mood because no one ever thanked him. <laughs> 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 You're like, he's getting up every morning with, he's the cra- hero. Yeah, <laughs> with the cracked hands and he's not asking for things. And but... when it's warm, when the house is warm, mm-hmm. then he summons everybody out of bed. Right. Yeah. And after their shoes are fucking polished. polished. Yeah. <laughs> now you can get up out of bed. Right. But also I was thinking about how going back to to the only recently has there been the concept of a childhood. Ah, uh, yeah. And that you can only really have a childhood if your parents are comfortable and relaxed enough to allow you one. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, the idea of a childhood of this kind of golden childhood where you're you're you are a protected innocent mm-hmm. is at at the very least middle class, mm-hmm. right? Um, most likely upper class. And in this this day and age when two parents usually have to work, yeah, both of them, um, you know, it's it's sort of an, an odd thing to hold on to. Mm-hmm. Um, because even when you get into, like, you know, unless you have like an upper class um, situation in which one parent can stay home to a certain extent mm-hmm. or in, unless you make sacrifices to do so, um, it's... Um, it's difficult to have somebody to, to hover around and protect that child as often as one would need to. Um, but yeah, the, the, the working class people and, uh, and working poor, you know, have always needed their children to be more self-reliant. Right. Because to they had literally to literally carry water for yeah, the family. Right. Because they, they either had to be gone or they needed the help. Right. So, um, and we're just talking as we are as we're discussing now. We're basically just talking about white people. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, right. I mean, well, I mean, yeah. So uh, Hayden himself came from um, a. Tell me the Midwest. I'm I'm imagining Wisconsin. <laughs> no, he he grew up in Detroit. Oh, you said that earlier. Yeah, yes, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, he grew up in Detroit. Oh, there's plains outside of Detroit. <laughs> no, he grew up in the city of Detroit. Okay. Um, his his parents, um, I think, divorced, and the mother couldn't take care of him and so he ended up being adopted by neighbors Hmm. literally adopted um, by next door neighbors the and his adopted father was um a strong baptist Hmm. uh, believer and um and was a emmanuel laborer Hmm. so yeah i mean i do think that this this could possibly be a strong memory of his and but hayden writes a lot about sort of the black experience mm-hmm. and um, and uh, African-American history uh, generally um, in his work um, and really creates these these scenes in which you feel like you get an intimate view into an individual's emotional life, mm-hmm. right? And that, that's what he's doing so beautifully here. Well, as a, as a child of Los Angeles uh-huh. and who had not expended... Uh, I had not experienced a genuine winter until I was well into my thirties. Oh, yeah. Um, when we were in Ohio, the blue black cold. Yeah. Absolutely. When you wake up and you're like, something is broken in the house. It's dark and much colder than it should be. Yeah. Again, coming at the comfort from what, uh, uh, how many decades removed from this. Yeah. But, I spent a, I spent a winter once in Wisconsin Mm-hmm. And that was amazing. <laughs> I love stark landscapes anyway, so I kind of loved love Wisconsin. I mean, mm-hmm. I love deserts, and I love Wisconsin in the middle of winter. 
um, everything iced over nothing, not getting below, sorry, not getting above zero Mm -hmm. for weeks at a time. Yeah, 17 degrees. Hey, put on your tank tops. It's time to jog (laughs) down to the AMP. I do remember the first day that it like reached up to 18. uh, I was like, oh, this is great. I'm going to go run some errands (laughs) on foot. And I did. It's like it was bright and sunny. I was like, mm, so warm. <laughs> you really change your expectations depending on where you are. But I loved Wisconsin. With I loved going out in the middle of winter, in the middle of night, and walking down to the lake where the wind would just cut you. It was so cold and so sharp. But everything was encased in ice, and you could hear these coyotes that would walk across the frozen over lake. Mm-hmm. I just loved it. it the was coyotes so were moving across the lake? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Again, I, a city child. This all sounds like the beginning of some horror, horror story, story where oh, the animals begin sentience, where they gain <laughs> sentience. and They could be sentient. I don't know. I mean, I never got close enough to speak to one. But Well, that's, what the, that's why you heard the coyotes, because they're screaming about how fucking cold it is. And <laughs> they... I like to think they were singing. <laughs> a jaunty Christmas carol. Uh-huh. And then they would come up and birds would drape like a shawl across uh-huh. you that they knitted themselves. Yeah, and, that sounds good. And rabbits would run ahead of you and wherever they ran, That's green exactly, and flowers would you appear. You see why I liked Wisconsin so much. Well, this is the vision I have of you in my head. <laughs> well, again, um, for the both of us, uh, several pounds and two children to go. Um, and, but you'd also have wine in your hand. Oh, great. Well, thank you for that. Yes. And maybe some chill dubstep is playing. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've totally diverged. Well, okay, so I, I wanted to I wanted to come back to this to the syllable thing. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, okay. that was oh, and real quick going before that, mm-hmm. um, Mel Brooks famously on his and his theories of comedy said that nothing is funnier in the alphabet than the K sounds and the K sounds. Oh, interesting. So, so you think this poem is hilarious? Then is that what you're saying? <laughs> Only after you pointed that out, suddenly the first stanza is hilarious to me. <laughs> this is not hardship. No, no, no. This is this is an exact representation of what he's hearing, right? Because mm-hmm. he would have heard k- k- the k- crackling, k- the crackling, right, mm-hmm. and breaking and splitting that had to happen, right? And, and you see all of these these C sounds: close, blue, black, cold, cracked, ached, thanked, banked. All, all of these words have this the hard K sound in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Bs, you know, uh, blue-blacked, banked, blaze. Um, and and these things kind of come together to, to go back and forth between that b k b k b k which sounds like it could be somebody building a fire. Mm-hmm. Um, pro- perhaps somebody even breathing in the room, right? Um, so it, it starts with almost entirely monosyllabic words there are a couple of i think there's yeah just a couple of uh two syllable words in it sunday the very, weekdays weather. Yeah, but the very first three syllable word is the word splintering mm-hmm. which is a very physical word mm-hmm. um so you, you tend to notice some of the larger words uh simply because all the rest rest of them are so simple so direct right so you have splintering which is a physical word and then indifferently which is a description of attitude, of course, and then, yeah. and then offices, which ends the poem, and then, which is largely abstract. Yeah. Uh, well, I, okay, we, we will, unless Go you're going right there no. for the end of this. Go ahead. <clears throat> for, um, okay, love's lonely and austere offices. We're already seeing something that's going to be like the uh, something I, I imagined out of the um, 
of Terry Gilliam's uh, Brazil or out of the German Bauhaus, not not Bauhaus, uh, what was uh, Albert Speer, Hitler's architect, um, oh. who had the very like um, grand, empty, humanless buildings that mm. had these grand arches. And so there would be office spaces <clears throat> where there would be one desk in this oh. empty, <laughs> wide room. So loves uh, every t- uh, this loves austere and lonely offices. I see it down this echoing, cold, humanless, dry Corridor. hallway. No wood furniture. Right. No tapestries. Right. Nothing to absorb sound or to give off warmth. Loves um, austere and lonely offices. Um, and that here's here's where here's where you're plodding away. Nobody hears you. Nobody sees you. And certainly nobody, nobody thanks you. Oh no, no one thanks you. Yeah, yeah. So you're talking about the abstract. That's what I just glommed onto. Yeah, I mean, I, I think of this often while taking care of our children because, of course, they're two and four, mm-hmm. and they don't understand at all what we are doing. Well, I didn't understand what my mother was doing until I was. Forty something. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I mean, I th- I thought that I understood earlier. I mean, my mother and I have a really good relationship. Right. I really respect uh, women and the work that women do that they aren't often thanked for. I've noticed all, everything that she did for us, and mm. I and I tried to thank her for it, and and I meant it. Um, but I don't think I had really any clue at all um, everything that she did for me until I I myself had children. And then I was like, oh, man, she really loved me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it really deepened my my knowledge of, of the many sacrifices that you have to make on a daily basis um, in order to care for your children. Um, and a lot of that sacrifice means a kind of erasure of self, mm-hmm. the self's needs, desires, the, the hopes removal, and yeah. dreams. You're no longer the protagonist. No, you're no longer the protagonist of your own story, or that's what it, it feels like a lot of the time. But I, I mean, I think of it daily, sometimes, you know, like bitterly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'll think of it to myself. But but oftentimes when I think of it, it actually does help me, that, mm-hmm. that final line. Yes. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? It helps me. Because it helps me to remember that somebody else did this for me, mm-hmm. especially if I'm doing caretaking that's really essential, like taking care of the kids when they're sick, even though I'm sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think maybe um, this line came to me a lot on our on our journey from Cincinnati to the Northwest, mm. because <laughs> Max and I, well, okay. Our son at that time, we only had one son and he was Mm. 10 months old and we hadn't really come to realize that our lives had changed irrevocably. Mm -hmm. So I stupidly got us an Airbnb that was a studio apartment thinking it would be fine because Max and I had lived in a studio apartment before we had children. When we had our bohemian lifestyle living in an art colony. Right. Yeah. And but, you know, it was a tiny, tiny space Mm -hmm. and you and I lived in it. Great. Right. You know, in fact, we were completely flummoxed when we moved into from there into a two bedroom apartment in Cincinnati. And because we were so used to just being like, hey, Max. Hey, yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> you were right there. And so I would often in that two bedroom apartment would turn around and be like, hey, Max. And then crickets. <laughs> yeah. I'd be like, where did he go? I'd be like, oh, my gosh, this two bedroom apartment is so luxurious. I have to come find you. I have to raise my voice to summon you. Yeah, exactly. Um, but 
So but I, in this Airbnb. In this Airbnb. Also, yeah. though, it helped that you and I have always been on the same team. Yeah. This third player, not a team player. <laughs> yeah, he's certainly not a team. But, you know, I don't know what baby is a team player. Mm-hmm. But but I, I stupidly got a studio apartment, which means that we didn't have a place to put the baby, like, in a second room, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, at, at night when we put him to bed at 8 <laughs> and then try to make our dinner out. So I was like, we put him to bed in eight at 8 in his crib, in his makeshift crib. And then I would try to cook us dinner in the dark. We'd try to cook dinner and eat it in the Quietly. dark as silently as we possibly could. But that that wasn't so bad. It was just stupid on my part. But the thing that really that really got is that I came down with bronchitis. Then Mercer, our, our son, came down with a stomach flu mm. who gave it to, I think, you me on top of my bronchitis. Mm-hmm. And I gave it to Max. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we learned that you can actually catch the same st- stomach virus twice. again. Yeah, over and over so again. So I gave it back to Mercer. Right. And the cycle just kept on going. And we're also in a place that has no bathtub. It's a stand-up shower <laughs> and one toilet. And the three of us. Oh, God. It was It was so horrific. Awful. It was a horror show. It was so awful. It was just weeks of disgusting illness with us we were stewing not... in the studio apartment. It was so terrible. And also, you know, I had left the Northwest when I was 18. And I was a very sickly child. I had asthma and allergies. And I had chronic bronchitis hmm. as a child. And I left when I was 18. And then I was gone for 18 years before I came back. In those 18 years that I was gone... I never had bronchitis. <laughs> so when I returned 18 years later, it was like the Northwest was like, oh, you're back. Here's, here's a, some bronchitis. Here's, a, yeah. here's, here, here's some, uh, here's some uh, Marion Berries. Um, here's some, I don't <laughs> Foggy know. Weather. And some hipster coffee shop server attitude. <laughs> of course. You have to have that. It goes with the fog and the Marion Berries and the bronchitis. But uh, yeah, so I, I remember... That was kind of the first time when I had to care for somebody when I myself was very mm-hmm. ill. Mm-hmm. And there was no choice. Yeah. It's not like the baby can take care of himself and clean up his own vomit. Yeah. So it was just like, okay, well, I've got bronchitis and stomach flu, and I'm still going to pick up this child and clean him off. Yeah. And you start finding yourself things that would be, okay, well, I'm, I'm not going to make this graphic too graphic but you're holding a sick child and i'm not saying you because this was me (laughs) but you the listener are holding a sick child cradling them they're throwing up on your chest and in your lap and while you yourself are seated on a toilet (laughs) voiding everything you've ever ingested for the last two weeks i hope nobody's listening to this while eating dinner so and you're just kind of like you just sigh and you and you you stare off into the distance, and this is where you are. This yeah, is your like, life now. Yeah, this is this is it. This is my life right yeah. now. This is the happily ever after scene that Disney never shows. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. For sure. But um, yeah. So I, you know, I, the the emotional content of this of this poem comes to mind in many different situations, but almost always when I'm when I'm caring for our children. Yeah. Well, you were you were talking about um, the last line being abstract when I just jumped in. Mm, that's right. Okay, so yeah, I, you you start off with this very simple and direct voice, 
And it goes through in, in that way the entire time. And then you get to this sort of grand gesture that happens at the end of the poem. It's it's abstract. It's hmm. what did I know? What did I know? Yes. Of love's austere and lonely offices. And that word offices is so perfect because it goes back to the idea of labor, mm-hmm. right? Um, that although taking on the caring of a child is a kind of adventure of the internal, um, as all adventures are, you're going to have moments of drudgery mm-hmm. and repetition and boredom and sometimes really terrible moments uh, where you're like, why did I do this? <laughs> and you are also, if you're going on a true adventure, um, you're going to risk something. Mm. You're going to risk yourself. You're going to risk losing yourself to all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And the reason why you go on that adventure is because the joys and the passion and the victories feel so large. You know, I don't know how you end up victorious in raising a child, but you certainly do have moments of, I, I have moments of pure joy with them as well. Mm-hmm. But it's <laughs> the pure joy you get in moments. And, and, and a lot of the days is love's austere and lonely yeah. offices with the young ones, at least. The, the, um speaker obviously we're seeing a huge leap in um maturity just by language we know that wisdom and intelligence yeah. and education have arrived because this person is now using the word austere right yeah that's for sure that's not a laborer's word yeah unless you know and now when we talk about austerity measures but still that is recent that, is, that it's entered the more common vernacular oh yeah um but yeah an offices uh could be title like Dad, there, there's your title. Right. Yeah, it yeah. sounds so easy. That's your office. The office of dad. Right. The office of dad is vast and lonely. It echoes. There's <laughs> every now and then there's a little bit of warmth, but you're stamping papers and yeah. filing and moving stuff. Yeah. And people will only notice your failures, oh, not when you've yeah. done an okay job. Yeah. Yeah. Although I, I have to say our older son now, whenever he does get sick, he couldn't be more grateful. I think the very first time that he thanked us on his own volition of his own volition without us prompting, you know, being like, what do you say? Yeah, or, yeah. you know, what's the, what's yeah. the magic word? Here's please. Your, here's thank your you. macaroni and cheese. Right. Now that, say thank yeah, you. Yeah, right. Without that is, um, is, was a moment, um, when he became ill. I think we were living in our last house. So he, he was probably three. Mm. Um, and you and I were both hovering over him because he was very sick with a stomach flu. Yeah. Not, neither one of us were, so that thing that was great. But I think we had we had just cleaned him up and you know gave him some little Pedialyte to sip on and sat a computer in front of him so that he could watch shows to distract him from his illness. And once we got him all cleaned up and in bed and laying down, and you know, we both you know were sort of touching his head and like you know can we get you can we get you anything? And uh, he was like. Thank you, Mama Doll. <laughs> Thank you so much. I was like, oh. I, I think I recall like looking at you and yeah. being like, oh my God, he just thanked us of his own volition <laughs> for something that we did. 
did for him. Red letter day. Yeah. Too bad sure. it was two in the morning and we were covered in feces <laughs> and vomit, but still, it was still, a good moment. Yeah, it was a good moment. Definitely. What can you tell me about him and the rest of his life? Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, let's see. So Hayden himself. Mr. Hayden. Yes. Yeah. Hayden himself was a well-regarded poet of his time. He, you know, achieved international recognition for his work. And even in, in 1976, he was appointed to serve as the U.S. Uh, poet Laureate. Mm. I think then I think it was called like poetry consultant to the Library of Congress, but mm-hmm. but it's what we call now the U.S. Poet Laureate, um, wow. which which made him the first African American to hold that position. Mm-hmm. Um, so his contributions to American literature have, have never been disputed. Um, his work has always been respected um, for a number of reasons. It's considered very elegant and vivid, and he 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 sort of. Um, traverses a range of forms that he's able to work in all with a high degree of excellence. So uh, during the 1960s, especially he was, you know, um, he was lauded, but he was also considered a fairly controversial figure. Why for? Um, Not for his work necessarily. um, But I, I think, I think it was, I think it was William Meredith in his forward to Robert Hayden's collected prose um, that he said that, that Hayden, declared himself at considerable cost in popularity, an American poet rather than a black poet. Oh. When for a time there was posited an unreconcilable difference between the two roles. Hmm. He would not relinquish the title of American writer for any what he would call narrower identity. Narrower. Okay. So uh, this attracted some harsh criticism. Um um, from other black writers because they believe that his stance aligned him with the European literary establishment and actively against his own racial heritage. Mm. Um, because at the time they were really seen as two opposing sides of our national literature. Um, the sort of the white voices of American poetry being known for its lack of recognition and even its erasure of the black experience. Um, and this is slightly ironic his stance is ironic, and, and the censure of him in being a kind of traitor is ironic, partly because he's known best for his representations of black history and black culture uh, in his work. Um, yeah, it's so so it's he was a little bit of he was a little bit of a controversial figure um, for that time, and it was a really polarized mm-hmm. era oh, not, not that we don't live in a polarized right. era well, 50 now years later let's get yeah, pol- it's, yeah it's just but it's resurfacing when you said that he was um a controversial figure i instantly just thought it was because he was like paul robeson uh, robeson who's like i am black in america and that blows that is not co- that's it's not great oh. um a man who openly courted or uh, openly um was uh, pro-communism um, oh yeah, yeah. He's like, why, why not? <laughs> right. What's this capitalism system doing America? for me? Yeah, capitalism not America ain't so hot for me. So you know, and, and a great personal cost. Right. He, you know, and you know, we're not fans of communism. I love socialism, but not communism. My wife is different from me. Um, before anybody writes your angry emails, just address <laughs> those to me. <laughs> but anyways, uh, so you you were saying that he was a, a controversial. Um, He's a controversial figure in the black community, right? In the white community, they're like, "Right on, yeah, sure, yeah, don't (laughs) don't rock the boat." (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, uh, his work 
has persisted, right? Mm-hmm. Like his work itself has persisted. I, I don't know. I don't know where he falls. He's thought of now mm-hmm. in this particular moment um, because, you know, this is one of the most anthologized poems in America for a contemporary mm. writer. Um, and he's well-loved. So, I know it was the um, the artist uh, Bas- Basquiat. Somebody asked him, do you yourself, see yourself as a painter, a painter or a, a black painter? Right. And then he asked, he's like, well, do you see yourself as a journalist or a white journalist? Right. Yeah. That's how he, he posited it back. Yeah, I know he he wanted to. Stir things up. Yeah. Well, that's I, I, I Well, I mean, I think, that, I think that I think that this is directly analogous to, um, you know, other people and other sort of identity structures. Right. Like I'm thinking about the big fight that Nico Case got into with Rolling Stone, <laughs> <laughs> which I love. Yeah. Let's hear let's hear that anecdote and oh. then we'll cap that off. Oh, it was a uh, Playboy. Oh, it was Playboy. Yeah. Um, they, they wrote um, it was a, it was a Twitter. A tweet. A tweet. Uh, Playboy wrote uh, a tweet to uh, Nico Case's account and uh, saying, you know, Nico Case is breaking the mold of what the women in the music industry would be. And she wrote, she wrote back, I'm not a fucking woman in music. I'm a fucking musician in music. And uh, and they said something like, oh, you know. Never has a, a compliment been so stringently rejected, something to that. And she said, don't Peggy Olsen me, motherfuckers, <laughs> which is one which... of my favorite responses to that. Um, in case anybody who's 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 listening doesn't know, but it's a reference to Mad Men um, and the uh, character Peggy Olsen, um, who was, you know, sort of brilliant in marketing and just constantly, constantly put down and uh obscured and rejected and things because the idea was that she was a silly little woman um you're just gonna woman woman explain mad men to us yeah for sure <laughs> anyhow so i promptly not promptly but a little while later um oh yeah for for christmas was it christmas or your birthday i don't know i don't know which one my christmas and my birthday well, are fairly close close, yeah. close close together so blurs but max made me a t-shirt that says don't don't Peggy, don't you Peggy Olson me motherfuckers, which was which scandalized the local small mom and pop print shop. Oh, did it? Yeah, there was like, <laughs> oh dear. I'm like, don't clutch your pearls. Uh, there were no <laughs> pearls there to clutch, but there was definitely a hand raised through the throat. I swine. <laughs> oh my, <laughs> such strong language. How did we? How did we arrive at the Peggy oh, Olson quote? Because. Uh, Nico Case, you know, now in the present day, she didn't want to be called a woman in music. Right. She wanted to be called a musician, musician. in music. Gotcha, gotcha. So, I mean, this this kind of um, vitriolic rejection of um, these identifying and shoeboxing, these identifying markers, pigeonholing, pi- pigeonholing somebody in, in a particular way, still gets people riled up. Yeah. Um, I'm and, not a and, white dad. <laughs> you aren't you look like a white dad to me well i am but my my kids are quarter breeds so ah <laughs> uh, well yeah um you know these this is a kind of a perennial argument in in various ways um you know do you embrace this as part of a larger sort of nod to your what you think of as your heritage or your history um and to the people who came before you, um, or 
do you reject it because you reject being seen in this very particular way by a hegemonic Mm. culture um, that at the time that Robert Hayden was writing, I feel sort of, I'm aware of the fact that especially then, and it still persists today, that a lot of great African-American writers just weren't being read because they weren't being taught um, in the school systems Mm. in any kind of integrated way, right? Like they might be brought out either during Black History Month or in a class that is specifically for African-American literature. And while I don't see those classes or that, that, that month as being at all a bad idea, I think they're great, um, that there was this idea that, you know, in the, in the quote unquote normal or regular classes that you would read white authors. Mm-hmm. So um, at this particular time, especially in, and in all the discussions that people were having about race and Hayden being a highly educated person who had studied under W.H. Auden <laughs> in, okay. in Michigan. Yeah. Who I believe uh, we, man. Okay. Um, uh, so we'll come back to so W.H. Auden. I actually know one poem by him. Actually, I know one line by this man. You know one line by Auden? Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed with myself. I'm impressed with you, too. What's the line about from Auden, do you know? Because it fits perfectly to the time we live in now. And I used to have this written on my wall. Oh. I smell blood and a prominent era of madmen. I smell blood and a prominent era of madmen. Now he wrote this in reference to him fleeing Germany, right? In in, in Nazi fleeing Nazi Germany, right? Um, and I just find it applicable to now. Yeah. I kept reciting that line in the elections going up. To, anyways, yeah. Um, I mean, I I, I I'm d- just very happy. I know who Auden is. <laughs> I'm you, very you mentioned happy a poet, you know- and I know that. <laughs> I'm very happy you know who Auden is, also. <laughs> Um, uh, I forgot what I was going to say. Well, he, I know that Auden came to New York, or when he when he got out. Yeah, a, uh, gay, a gay man fleeing Germany. Go figure. Right. Yeah. For sure. Um, was Robert Hayden gay? We don't know. I, I should probably research. Well, that. you don't have to know somebody's who they're sleeping with to, to appreciate their art. <laughs> no, of course not. We would love to hear your thoughts on the poem. If there's anything that we didn't get to in the discussion that you would like to hear more about or to give us any of your own reactions to the poem. Um, I think of this poem a lot myself. Uh, A lot of people who um, are fathers might relate to this. People who have fathers who they're suddenly realizing they might owe uh, a debt of gratitude to uh, may also relate to the poem. We'd love to hear your experience of it. Yeah, and you don't have to feel any pressure to appreciate your fathers. Um. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. Um, I still do like a good a good poem or a good story that has a good dad at the center of it. Yeah, it those makes are... me feel happy that that exists. Yeah, that's that's kind of um, a little magical for me. It's yeah. like a oh look, there's a unicorn in a glade. Oh, there's a story <laughs> about a good father. Hmm. <laughs> Here, it's so interesting because the tension in the poem is the guilt of the son as opposed to any kind of cruelty from the father, which Correct. is which you get a lot in, mm. in literature, the bad dad. Right. But it's the acknowledgement, like, ah, it was crappy times. Yeah. The chronic angers of this house. Right. I spoke indifferently to him. All of that, right? Um, like, it wasn't the best of times. Yeah. But he did the best that he could. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's real love there. Well, sometimes... It, it starts, Oh, go ahead. Well, sometimes simply 
minimizing generational damage is the best you can do. And that is, that needs to be applauded when it happens. If you could just stem it. Right. Definitely. Um, that, but, that's definitely what, um, that's a reader response. Yeah. <laughs> For sure it is. <laughs> it doesn't resist that, does it? <laughs> um, mm, well, I would say that your response is adjacent. <laughs> adjacent to that, to okay. that poem. I, I, I really see this as a love poem. Yes, absolutely. To a father. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and I think a great that's deal why. of warmth. Yeah, literal, and, and, literal warmth. <laughs> and the word you've taught me uh, in our last show, compassion. Yeah, indeed. There's a lot of compassion here. Well, we'd love to hear what you think. And before we say goodnight, here's that poem one more time. Those Winter Sundays by Robert Hayden Sundays, too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold. Then, with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather made banked fires blaze, no one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking, When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house, speaking indifferently to him who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know, what did I know, of love's austere and lonely offices? Thank you so much for joining us tonight. We hope that this has been for you a momentary stay against confusion. This is Max. And this is Danielle. Good night. Have a good night. Bye-bye. that we left out was Nico Case's sign-off, which you were right there with. Oh, Nico Case's sign-out from this whole debacle was, get with the now, pussy, pussy shavers. shavers. <laughs> Let's end this bad boy. And I, I need I need a drink. Mm. Mm.